You're listening to a podcast of Red Sea Church, a community of faith in Portland, Oregon, where our mission is to draw to Christ, develop in community, and deploy into culture. We have been working through a series called Road to Emmaus this year, as most of you know. We got the name of the series because at the end of Luke, the risen Christ uh, walks along the road to Emmaus with two disciples and talks to them about, he asks them questions, and then he talks to them about himself. And he says in there to him and those two and other disciples that all of the scriptures point to him. They should have realized what happened in his life because all of scripture points to Christ in the gospel. So we thought this year that, okay, well, if that's true, let's walk through at least the high points of the Old Testament and say, where does that point to Christ and the gospel? So that's what we've been doing. We haven't reviewed for a couple weeks, so I want to do a very quickly walk through a review. And you guys, this is one of those interactive parts. You guys can shout out uh, something, not just anything, something. Um, so as we go through these, I want you to just sort of like, what's the big idea of that event that comes to your mind. What was the big idea, particularly, just to, not to influence you, but to lead you towards the right, correct answer, is to, is particularly in God's, his provision or his grace towards people, but whatever comes to mind. So in creation, what comes to mind? Seven days. Seven days, okay. <laughs> How about being created in God's image, okay? That's just, wow, this is going to take a while, Okay. Man, maybe I should just rehearse this stuff. We were created in God's image, okay? That's kind of a big deal, okay? And we were commissioned to work, be fruitful and multiply. And here's the bounty of the whole earth. And you get to have everything and anything you want except one thing. But God in his grace gave us all those things. Okay, what's the point of the fall? Sin, okay, be more specific. We need Jesus, okay, well that's, the, that's all the way through here, we need Jesus, okay? okay. Well, what happened at the fall? Come on, you guys know this stuff. Death and separation, what did they do? What did Adam and Eve do? They sinned, well be more specific to say sin. They did something more, they disobeyed, they rebelled. They said, I want to do it my way, okay? We're not going to listen to you, God. We're going to change what you said, we're going to do it our way. And sin entered the earth at that time kind of another big monumental event, okay? We've been wrestling with that ever since, okay? Okay, Noah, real quick. That's right, good. I mean, no, we think of, oh my goodness, he killed everybody, he destroyed the world. But also part of the theme of Noah and the Noahic covenant is, in his grace, he saved a family. He could have wiped everybody. He, everybody deserved to be wiped out, but he saved a family, and from that family, the earth was repopulated. How about Tower of Babel? What's that? Rebellion. rebellion. Sort of a passive-aggressive rebellion. God, we're not going anywhere. We're going to stay right here, and we're going to build our own little tower to you, and we're going to do it our way. And God said, in his grace, said, nope, if you stay there, we're going to have a repeat of Noah. We won't destroy the world by a flood, but I'll find out some other way to do it. So in his grace, he confused the language so they would be forced to be dispersed and to obey the command to be fruitful and multiply and work the earth. Okay? Abraham made a covenant. Okay? There was a man, again, a man in a foreign land. 
well, foreign from the promised land, and he was an idol worshiper, and God reached down and said, I want you. I got a promise for you. And he called him to himself and promised him that all the world will be blessed because of what God was going to do through him, and he made a covenant. God cut a covenant, swore an oath that may I be killed and destroyed if I don't do what I said I was going to do to you, Abraham. This... We're, we're, the time, of, the sound effects were a little off, but we'll work on it. Okay, okay. Then Joseph. What was the point of Joseph? Salvation of God's people. God promised Abraham, but you know what? You got to go down to Egypt. We'll talk about a little about that later today. And and, and 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 things, event after event after event in Joseph's life seem to go wrong, and he seems to get ripped off. But actually, it's the sovereign hand of God to get His people into Egypt for a reason. And at the end of the book of Genesis, Joseph says to his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And that's what happened. Okay, we have Moses. What about the call of Moses and the birth of Moses? What's that? That's right. God said, hey, my people are in bondage, they're in suffering, and I'm going to pick a guy to represent, to work through, a mediator to work through to save those people. And God called Moses, not because he was such a great guy, but because God sovereignly called him to be here. And God worked in his life. Um, the Passover. What's the me- message of the Passover? Yeah, it's a foreshadow in Christ, the death, but it had a requirement of faith. This is where they, he was going to kill all the firstborn uh, of, in, in Egypt, including those of Israel, the family of Israel, except unless they went out in the doorposts and killed a lamb and put the blood on the doorposts of their land. And the angel of death would pass over them, but if he saw, the angel of death would come through and kill all the firstborn, but if they, he saw the blood on the doorposts, he would pass over those families. And so the blood was shed... And that's an act of faith in the part of Israel. This this sounds really silly. We're going to put blood on the doorpost. But it's what saved the families. Okay? Crossing of the Red Sea. You guys better get this one. Okay? (laughs) Nothing nothing comes to me. Okay, what happened at Red Sea? God displayed his mighty power. power. They're cornered. They're boxed in. All intents and purposes, they were done. They were toast. And they started whining and complaining, so he opens up the sea, and he delivers them, and he destroys their enemy, and they are miraculously delivered through the parting of the Red Sea to go out of Egypt. Mosaic Covenant. What's the essence of the Mosaic Covenant? That's right. God is holy. I redeemed you. Did you study ahead of time? Oh, man. Oh, man, you're reading ahead. Okay. Um... Yeah, Mosaic Covenant isn't just about works to earn God's salvation. The Ten Commandments begin, I am the God who delivered you from Egypt. Now this is how I want you to live in light of that holiness. You want to know what a holy God looks like? How you live with him? Here, I'm going to give you a law that shows you how to do that. Okay? Um, The tabernacle. What's the point of the tabernacle? God's presence was there in this tent. Very specific dimensions, very uh, great details, but God was there in his presence um, and uh, his presence was, and that's the key, among the people. None of the other Asians did that. He would sat, literally, they camped around his presence there. Where, golden calf. What happened at the golden calf? It just came out of nowhere. That's right. Hey, Aaron says, I don't know what happened. I just throw this stuff in the fire, and boom, there's this golden calf. It's not my fault. 
Right. They rebelled. M- Moses up in the mountain talking to God, and they're down there saying, we need to calf to worship. In the midst of getting the Ten Commandments, in the midst of getting the word, you shall have no other gods before you, they're saying, we need another god. Okay? Uh, and that's indicative of what happens from on. High priest uh, and the priesthood. What's the point of a priest in the priesthood? Mediators. They work. They have specific jobs to do. Sacrifice to represent the people. And that's one, that imagery is now in the New Testament. We are a priesthood of believers. It's been dispensed, not just with the Levites, but now we all are. Day of Atonement. Good. It's substitutionary atonement. And, and the, the animals come. The high priest goes in one day of the year to sacrifice. He lets go of one goat, the scapegoat. He kills another one. He goes and sprinkles blood all over the, over the ark so that when God looks at the law and other things in the ark, he has to look through the blood to say, okay, I won't hold them accountable. One more year, I'll forgive them. But the problem with the Day of Atonement is it had to be repeated every, every year. Because the blood of goats and lambs really don't bring forgiveness, the Bible says. Um, spies, spies going into Cana and Israel rebels. That's, that summarizes, doesn't it? The spies went in and they rebelled, okay? Why did they rebel? Why did Israel, what's the big word that they rebelled from? They didn't trust them. What's that? Fear. Fear. They were afraid so they wouldn't go in, even though God said, this is your land. Fear drove them. And the consequence of that was for, for every day a spy was in the land, they would spend a year wandering the desert, and those 20 and above would drop and die in the desert. That generation would not go into the promised land, except for two, Caleb and Joshua. Um, Deuteronomy, Josh talked about this. Deuteronomy 6, who is it we're supposed to be sharing the, the word and the law and the life and pursuing after God? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Who is supposed to teach that to whom? The emphasis of that passage is parents to children. It's generationally. We can't expect the next generation to know that if we do not teach them. As you walk along the road, as you get up, as you lie down, have it every place. Constantly be talking about how awesome God is. Rahab. We talked about this last week. What was the significance of Rahab? Faithfulness. Well, she had faith, but what about her faith that made her unique as a Canaanite? That's right. She did something with her faith. They all saw the same thing, but she acted, and God said, okay, in his sovereign grace, in this nation that there's destruction, I'm going to reach down and save the single Canaanite woman who's a prostitute, and through her, her whole family. Not because she deserves it, because she had faith and acted on her faith. So God, God saved her from that. So here we are, and we're in the book of Joshua. And today we're going to cover the entire book of Joshua. We're going to cover all 24 chapters. Okay, you ready? Go. Okay, here we go. Joshua, in, in chapter 1, Joshua takes charge. God says, Joshua, you're my man. Spot, and uh, in chapter 2, the spies go into the land, and we have the story of Rahab. In, sto- in chapters 4 through 5, they cross the Jordan. The army gathers. They, they get through. It's another miraculous provision by God. They cross through the Jordan, and they get ready to attack the land. In chapters 6 through 12, they take the land. They defeat the enemies. They conquer the cities. They burn them, and they take over the land. There's a lot of sub-stories in this, obviously, but we're moving fairly quickly through this. In chapters 13 through 21, they divide up the land. This is kind of important because as they get in there, 
uh, and the rest of the Old Testament is going to be, most of it's about the fact that they're in the promised land, and there were 12 tribes, and they were divided up geographically, different spaces. They got this per family, per tribe, except for the Levites. The Levites did not get land per se, like everybody else, because they were the priesthood, and they lived all over the place. And that's that. Uh, and then in, in chapters 22 through 24, we have the covenant renewal, where Joshua gathers the people and says, okay, you guys are here, we're in, and got, you have the law, you have everything, you know, you're going to serve God. And then he says a little reverse, he says, I know you guys can't do this. And they scream, yes, we can, we can do this. And he says, okay, uh, you choose this day who you're going to serve. But as for me and my household, we're going to serve the Lord. He spoke for his household. That's the book of Joshua. So in conclusion, no. Today I want to focus on one verse in the book of Joshua. One verse. One verse that a lot of people find very disturbing. In the book of Joshua, we read, that Israel, we read of Israel obeying God's command to slaughter the Canaanites to, in order to occupy the promised land. It appears that God orders a genocide. And a lot of people, including myself for many years, were bothered by this. How can a good, loving God order men, women, children, everybody to be killed? In fact, in verse, just one verse, Joshua 6, 21, he says, Then they, Israel, devoted all all in the city, that's the city of Jericho, to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, donkeys, to the edge, with the edge of the sword. And that's what they did. They killed everybody. Men, soldiers, old men, women, nursing mothers, children, even the animals. If it had breath, their orders were to kill it by the edge of the sword. And that's what they did. That's very uncomfortable, isn't it? It's very distressing to hear that did God really say that? And this has been something that has bothered people for many years. And many people who oppose Christianity take stories like this and say, see, this can't be from God. This can't be a book that was written by God. It's just a bunch of ruthless, uh, primitive people doing things they shouldn't have done. They, they should know, they didn't, they're not as civilized as we are, so they didn't know better. And then there's others who use this as an example that they really, is, uh, atheists use this as an example that really, God, the whole thing about God is a bunch of nonsense. For example, Richard Dawkins, the atheist, the author, the evolutionary biologist, says this, The killing of the Canaanites is ethnic cleansing in which the bloodthirsty massacres were carried out with, in a xenophobic relish. Joshua's destruction of Jericho is morally indistinguishable from Hitler's invasion of Poland or Saddam Hussein's massacres of the Kurds and the Marsh Arabs. And that's the way the world reads these stories and says that's what it's like. And many people who are not Christians read these kind of things or hear these things, and it does bother them. It comes, becomes a barrier. I don't know if I want to believe in a God who does that kind of stuff. And many people who are Christians develop this perception, this, this idea that the God of the Old Testament was harsh and hard to please and just out mean. But the God of the New Testament, no, he's different. He's, he's loving and he's kind and he's forgiven. As if either we have two different gods between Old Testament and New Testament, or God is bipolar, okay, has personality disorder, okay, or maybe God changed. 
maybe he was mean, and then during the intertestamental period, he kind of woke up to what it should get. It wasn't getting it done, so he changed. And that's the impression we have in many churches. But that's not accurate. Christians struggle with this, and as I said for many years, I too struggled with this. Why did God command Israel to kill everyone? That's the question we need to ask ourselves. Why did God command Israel to kill everyone? I think there are three purposes. The scriptures tell us three purposes why God ordered this to happen. I believe God did command Israel to do this. They did it in obedience to God. That's what the scripture clearly teaches. First of all, one of the purposes is to protect Israel from falling into idolatry and apostasy. To protect Israel from falling into idolatry, worshiping other gods and apostasy, turning their back on the one true God. So we see this in Deuteronomy 20, verses 16 through 18. Deuteronomy 20, verses 16 through 18. He says, but in the cities of, this is God speaking before they go in. This is his instructions before they go in. But in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you, again, God is giving them the land, for an inheritance, you shall, you shall, you shall save alive nothing that breathes. It's pretty explicit. And you shall devote them to complete destruction. The Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the um, Perizzites, the, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded. Now listen to verse 18. That they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they, may, that they have done for their gods, and so you sin against the Lord your God. So he's explaining to Israel why he wants them to kill everybody, because they, if they leave them alone and leave them alive, they will lure Israel away and help them and, and to, uh, um, to worship other gods and turn their back on God. Now, I'm not going to spend time on this one because much of the rest of the Old Testament deals with this problem. This is a perennial problem in the nation of Israel, that they do have other people living with them, and they constantly, instead of winning those people to the true God, the one true God, their backs are turned on the one true God, and they end up following all these other gods. So we're not gonna, I'm not going to spend time on this, because in essence, for the rest of the year, we're going to be unpacking this from time to time very explicitly. But the second reason... The second purpose for God commanding Israel to kill everyone, first to protect Israel from, the fall, from uh, falling into idolatry, the second one is to punish the Canaanites for their sin. To punish the Canaanites for their sin. And gen- we need to go back on this, because this is really important. This is the essence of what, why they particularly were killed. But this is not just happened now. This wasn't a rash decision on God's part. We need to go all the way back to Genesis 15. When God is calling uh, Abraham and talking to Abraham, he says these things in Genesis 15, 13 13 through 16. And then then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they will be servants there. He's talking about going into Egypt. And they will be inflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace you shall be buried at a good old age. Verse 16. And they shall uh, come back here for the, uh, in the fourth generation. Why? For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So God's telling Abraham, your, gen- your family eventually will inhabit the land that Abraham then lived in. 
But they have to wait because God, the, the sin of the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Jebusites, all those ites, is not complete. And God's command to destroy them was why? Because of their iniquity, because of their sin, because of their rebellion against him. That's the reason he's waiting. And the word complete there means full. Basically, God's saying they're sinners, but I'm going to wait till they get as bad as they really are going to get. I'm not going to judge them prematurely. Now, it's really important that we get this. This is not a rash decision. If we just really think through this for a little bit, God is saying basically 600 years before they killed the Canaanites. 600 years. Think about that. The generations of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph. Then they go down into Egypt for 450 years. They come out of Egypt, and they're wandering the desert for another 40 years. So it's been almost six, over 600 years that God knew that he was going to have to Canaan, but he was going to wait. In his patience, in his sovereign grace, he was going to wait, not kill them right away, because their sin was not full. That's like the United States hasn't even been a country for only 230-something years. It's even before. It's like somebody saying in, in the year 1413 that, you know, the United States is going to be an evil place and it's going to be destroyed by God. In 1413. That's how much ahead of time God said, I have to deal with these people, but I'm going to give them grace 600 years worth. That's a lot of grace. That's a lot of time. And um, so that's what he did. Now, this is also something we understand that it's this, the issue here is the sin of the Canaanites, not that Israel was righteous, not that Israel was such great people. We read this in Deuteronomy 9, verses 4 and 5. Do not say in your heart after God... Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, that because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord has driven them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or uprightness of your heart are you going to to possess their land. But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you, and that he may confirm the word that of the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So he is explicit, actually repeatedly, redundantly explicit, that it's not because Israel is such a great country or people, but because of the sin of the nation that he has to do the judgment. He didn't want Israel to make it say, hey, we're such great people, look at us. He says, the only reason you're moving in is because of my grace. And the reason they are moving out is because of judgment towards them. And the other reason he tells us in here that's really important is not just the wickedness of those nations, but also remember, he says in here, that he may confirm the word of the Lord swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What is the word? What was the promise that God made to them? That their families would be in that land. That God would give their family that land. And the emphasis here is not just that he judges uh, sin, but God is also a keeper of his promises. When God promises something, even if it takes hundreds and hundreds of years, he's going to make sure it gets done. And this is not, and and I want to be explicit here, that this is not an issue of ethnic cleansing. So that some of the people here, and and Dawkins and others say, this is ethnic cleansing. This is not by definition of ethnic cleansing as we understand it today. First of all, um, it's not about ethnic differences. It's not about skin color. It's not about nationality. It's not about that. God never said it's because they look differently, act differently than you. That's the issue. It's because of their sin not their ethnic origin. 
So that's important to remember. Secondly, in God's law, the law of Moses, he provides lots of commands for foreigners and sojourners in their midst. God makes sure that people, other ethnic groups, are actually accounted for and treated fairly and kindly within the law of Moses. So he's not anti-everybody else. Also, we read in the law of Moses, in, in Deuteronomy 20 particularly, that if God gives them instruction, battles, how to fight battles. And he says, if you're going to fight a battle outside of the promised land, I want you to leave people alive. But if you're going to fight a battle inside the promised land against your enemies, I don't want you to leave them alive. So this isn't just about, hey, we're going to kill everybody different from us. This is, we need to take the promised land because God's promised to us, and the people who reside there, their sin has now reached its fullness, it's time for judgment. This is not the ethnic cleansing of, that we understand today of like Hitler and the Jews and other things like that. And the phrase you read here purportedly, devotion or consecration to destruction. We heard that phrase. Devoted to destruction simply means set aside to be destroyed because of punishment of sins. Like when you sacrifice an animal in the sacrificial system, they are devoted to destruction. They are killed because of the wrath of God. So that's what that is about. And we also know that the Canaanites were not without the awareness of God, right? We know that they knew about God. They didn't worship God. They didn't follow God. They didn't acknowledge God. But they knew about God, and we knew, saw that last week. In chapter 2 of Joshua, 9 through 11, he said, and, and, and Rahab said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you uh, the land, and that the fear of you has fallen on, upon us, plural, and that all the inhabitants of land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water the Red Sea before you when you come out of Egypt and what you did, and what you did to the two kings, Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan, uh, Sihon and Og, who were devoted to destruction. Same thing. Um, as, as, then verse 11. As soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is the God of heavens above and the earth beneath. That was their conclusion. But they didn't repent and turn to God. They were not aware. They saw, they heard about Egypt, uh, the, the Red Sea. They heard about his deliverance for all these years. And they refused to turn to God, except Rahab. It's actually pretty amazing. In the story of a nation who's going to be utterly destroyed, wiped out, that God looks down into one woman's life, a single woman, who's a Canaanite, she's not even part of Israel, and she's a prostitute, and he hears and she, he observes her individual faith. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that an amazing sign of God's sovereign grace? Even though all these thousands of people rebel, he's attentive to one who repents and believes. And he saves her, and through her, her entire family. That's amazing grace. Now, the three, the three purposes... Uh, that God commanded Israel to kill everyone. First of all, to protect Israel from falling into idolatry and apostasy. Second one is to punish Canaanites for their sin. And the third reason is to picture the final judgment. To picture the final judgment. Remember, we're, we understand that this, is, this Bible is one complete whole story. Okay, this is out of proportion. And over here, and then there's the cross. And then we know the story continues. And we know that part of the story is over here at the end. And we have a glimpse. Like these people all had a glimpse of the cross, enough to be held responsible, that we also know that we have a glimpse of what happens here. Because we're told in the scripture what happens here. At the end of time, at the new heavens and the new earth. Just proceeding to the new heavens and the new earth is 
a day of judgment. And Paul talks about that in 2 Thessalonians 1 through, chapter 1, verses 5-10. through 10. He says this, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you consider worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflicted you, afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the day of his might, the glory of his might, when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled among all who believed because of our testimony that to you was believed. Now, he says, Paul says in here, there's a day of judgment coming. And in that day of judgment, Christ is going to show with his angels in fire. It's not going to be because it's covered on CNN. We'll know. We'll know when he returns. There's no secret return. And he comes back, and he's going to sing. And he says, vengeance, punishment is coming on two types of people. They're actually the same people, but he describes them two ways. One is those who do not know God. Those who don't know God. And the second one is those who, listen to the phrase, do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that interesting phrasing? Do not obey the gospel of Lord Jesus Christ. And I think it's important that we understand that because the message of the gospel is a message not just to be heard and believed, but is a message to be obeyed. And we have to be careful as Christians, sometimes we present the gospel message as if it's optional. Right? Hey, you guys want to get right with God? You want to get your religious act together? Here, let me give you one of the options you can have. Get right with Jesus. He died for you. He loves you, so it's okay. As if it's one of the many options available. No. The gospel is plan A for God. There is no plan B. So we have to be careful. It is a message to be obeyed. It's the gospel is the announcement of who God is and what he has done in and through Jesus Christ. It's not what we do. And um, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture. That's what we've been talking about. That's what we talked about till here. Summarized in those words, Christ uh, died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Not just believing the facts. We talked about that last week. Who believes all those things about, about Jesus the same that we believe? Who are those people? Are those beings? The demons believe the exact same things we do. But they're not going to be spending eternity with God in heaven. Okay? We talked about that last week. Jesus said, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and that on the third day rise from the dead and repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. Jesus said that, I, that I need to, you need to proclaim that I died and I rose again, but also part of that message is you need to repent and believe. You need to respond. So the message of the gospel includes a call to respond in repentance and faith. We as Christians who talk to non-Christians and preach need to remember there is a call to respond. And the only appropriate response is repentance and faith. And also the message of the gospel includes a warning, doesn't it? The message of the gospel includes a warning. We know that this world, as it is now, will someday come to a day of reckoning. And that... And that's true for everyone, whether you want to believe it or not. And that's hard. And people might feel that they're okay now without Jesus. But one thing we need to have to be clear to is they won't be okay then 
without Jesus. And that's part of the message to be responded to in repentance and faith. Okay. We saw three reasons why God commands Israel to kill everyone. To protect Israel, to punish the Canaanites, and to picture the final judgment that's coming as part of the gospel. Why does this still bother us? Why does this still bother us? I thought about that a lot. And I think there's a couple reasons. First of all, I think it's because we position ourselves to determine what is true and not true. We position ourselves in our lives to determine what is true and not true. We often think of God, if we're really honest and, and really explain how we think about God, I think sometimes, and maybe I'm the only one in this room who thinks this way, okay? But I think sometimes we think God is just a really big one of us. That we think of him in human terms. He's just big. Yes, he's really big, he's really strong, he's really smart, he's a superhuman, but he's just a big one of us. And therefore, we think that he, uh, if we uh, make him like us, he's more manageable. And uh, though he's superhuman, you know, if he is superhuman, he's like us, then he has to follow the rules that we follow. He has to live within the barriers that we live within because he's just a big one of us. Culturally and individually, there is a resistance to authority. Culturally and individually, in our pride, we have a resistance to authority. Question authority is a mantra of our culture. And the greater the authority, the more we feel it is our right to question it and to criticize it, right? Who is the most criticized person in this country? President Obama, because he's the president. It doesn't make a difference who's the president. Everybody has the right to criticize him. That's the American way. And God is definitely a big authority figure. We are conditioned to decide for ourselves what is right and wrong. In our culture, we decide for ourselves what is right and wrong. Let's see, today, am I going to be a Republican or a Democrat? I decide. Am I going to be a vegan or a carnivore? I decide. In our culture today, am I going to be a male or female? I'll decide. We decide everything. It's our right. We even say sometimes it's our God-given right. We seek to determine truth through the filters of our own preferences. If we like this and don't like that. If we like something, then it's true for me. How many times have you heard that? And if you like something different, well, that's true for you. But don't say mine's wrong because that is intolerant. Oh, we can't be intolerant because we get to choose for ourselves. And if I don't like something, then it doesn't have to be true. So the essence of that whole thing that I just ran out is that, the, that we position ourselves to judge God and his word. We think we decide what's right and wrong. We don't like these kind of passages, so they can't be right, can't be from God. Secondly, I think we are limited in our understanding of God. We, in our smallness, in the humanness of our view, that we forget that God is the creator of all things, and he is the ruler of all people, whether or not they recognize him. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. God is in charge of all those things. He directs the courses of nations, and he knows if a sparrow falls out of the sky. That's how awesome and big God is. We forget that. We also forget that God is completely and uniquely holy, righteous, and just. 
His holiness is his complete separated from sin and seeks to express his own glory. His work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. The God of, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Part of the problem I think we have with holiness and justice, we can't spend a lot of time on this, is that we have very tarnished, diminished views, incomplete perspectives of what holiness and righteousness and just, even justice is. So therefore, we can't imagine the purity and bigness of God in what they truly are. We, we miss that, the purity and the, and the vastness of God's holiness, because it's tarnished. It's like, and we say stuff like, oh, we know God, we understand God. A guy recently said, you know, saying that we understand God and we know God is like going to the beach, wading into the water and saying, I know the ocean. Right? No. You waded into a beach. The ocean covers over 70% of the earth's uh, 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 surface. It is over 141 million square miles. So we can't say when we wade into the beach, we know the ocean. And yet sometimes we are flippant saying, yeah, we know God. And we have in his grace a taste of the beach. But we really don't know the vastness and hugeness and awesomeness of who God is. Thirdly, I think we do not appreciate the seriousness of our sin. When God created the world, he said that there are going to be consequences to disobedience and to to rebellion and, and those kind of things. And he says in there, the Lord, in Genesis, he says, the Lord took man and woman in the garden to work it, to keep it. And the Lord commanded them, saying, you shall surely eat of every tree of the garden, but, you, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For the, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Even before sin was there, God warned, if you sin, you will get death. The next chapter. Didn't take long. What was Satan's lure to Eve? He asked her, what did God say? She repeated back to God's, what God said, a little inaccurate, but she repeated. And then Satan says to her, you shall not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. And since that moment, humanity has been wrestling and suffering the consequences of living with those two lies. We won't die. We want to be like God. And we live with that and we refuse to believe what God said about sin. God said sin and a churchial judgment sin is everybody's primary problem. Without exception. In Romans 3 he says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The primary metric for sin is the glory of God, not, how we, not each other. I'm better than they are, so I must be doing okay. He said the wages of sin is death. What we earn from sin is death. And yet we sometimes forget that. The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. And the only thing earned and deserved by any sin is death. I think we're quick to pass over that, especially if you've been in a church for a while. Yeah, we know that verse. Learned that in Sunday school. But do we really appreciate that? We, we were created in the image of God way back at the beginning. And being part and created in the image of God is being created with a sense of justice. We have an innate sense of justice. We know that there's a right and wrong. And when we are wronged, we know somebody has to pay. That's why forgiveness is such a huge deal. Because we want justice satisfied. 
Okay, we're created in the image of God. Let's say we have three people who are convicted of crimes. Yes, use your imaginations that the judicial system is perfect, okay, and that people who commit a crime are convicted justly, and they get a just sentence for that. So let's say we have over here Peter, and Peter is sentenced to one year in jail. One year in jail. And here we have Paul. Paul is sentenced to ten years in prison. Ten years in prison. And over here we have Mary, because we're not sexist and women commit crimes. Okay? So we have Mary. And Mary is sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. One year in jail, ten years in prison, life in prison. Okay, that's their punishment. That's their sentence. What does the severity of their punishment tell us about the severity of their crime? What does the severity of their punishment, without even hearing about the trial, what do we know about the differences between Peter, Paul, and Mary, other than being a good singing group from the 60s? Okay? What does the severity of their, their punishment tell us about their crime? Yeah. We would expect, if the punishment is just, that Mary did, f- out, far, did a much more horrible thing than Peter and they both did something far worse. No, Paul, and then Peter. That's why I named them different so I'd remember. First, one, two, three, okay? The severity of the crime shows the severity, the severity of the punishment shows the severity of the crime. Would we agree? It's common sense. It's transcultural. Now let's add a fourth person. Let's ask Bob. Let's add Bob. Bob is sentenced to death. He's not sentenced just to death. He's sentenced to eternal death. Bob is sentenced to eternal death where he will suffer forever. What does, what does the severity of the punishment tell us about the severity of the crime? What does the severity of the punishment tell us about the severity of the crime? Oh, by the way, We're all Bobs. So what does that tell us about our crime against God? Very serious. Infinitely serious. Infinitely serious. That it would require eternal death. Our sin is a crime, a rebellion against the eternal and holy God. Jonathan Edwards, the pastor and theologian of the 1700s, and talking about this kind of stuff, said that, and it just, it's one of those things that just stretches my mind, he talked about the, the reality of the horribleness of hell is an echo of the glory and holiness of God. The horribleness of hell reflects back, because it is so horrible, because it is such a just punishment, it must point to an awesomely holy and glorious God, if it's that bad. That's mind-boggling for me, maybe not for you guys, when I think about stuff like that. Hell is is an echo of the glory of God. Sin requires eternal punishment. And sometimes we have to be very careful here in churches. We have to be very careful because that makes us uncomfortable. That makes people very uncomfortable. So we want to redefine things. We want to say, well, we'll talk about it a little differently. 
And I've, I have a quote from John Piper that's been very impactful for me, and I've read it here before, but I'm going to read it again. John Piper says this, Understanding the rightness of our sin, why Christ had to die for our sins. If we get that wrong, we warp the gospel message. And Piper says this, Man-centered humans are amazed that God would withhold life and joy from his creatures. But the God-centered Bible is amazed that God should withhold judgment from sinners. It, is, it horribly skews the meaning of the cross when contemporary prophets of self-esteem say that the cross is a witness to my infinite worth since God was willing to pay such a high price to get me. The biblical perspective is that the cross is a witness to the infinite worth of God's glory and a witness to the immensity of the sin of my pride. What should shock us is that we have brought such contempt upon the worth of God that the very death of his own son is required to vindicate that worth. The cross stands as a witness to the infinite worth of God and the infinite outrage of sin. It took the infinitely costly death of the Son of God to repair the dishonor that my pride brought against the glory of God. We are all Bobs. We are all due the same judgment. That's what we earn. That's the wages we get, all of us, for our sin. I read for you just briefly, just a few minutes ago, Romans 3 and Romans 6. And Romans 3 says, all of sin and foreshore of the glory of God, we're free to throw that out once in a while. But actually it tells us how God deals with that problem, that context of that verse. And Paul says in Romans 3, 21-26, these things. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. That's what we've been doing this whole year. The law and the prophets talk about the gospel. Verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, all who believe, get the same thing. For there is no distinction. God does not play favorites. Verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And verse 24. And are justified by His grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Through paying the price. Jesus paid the price. So God's to say that punishment, that that debt you owe me because your sin is taken care of whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. Not a word we use much. He absorbed the wrath of God. In our culture, we don't, it still doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Think of it this way. If you do one sin, one, any old sin at all, you deserve to die in the electric chair, according to God's law. So you would be strapped to the electric chair and given the whole voltage and be electrocuted to death. What Jesus did for all our sins and all sins that you commit, strapped Himself in an electric chair and took all the voltage of God's wrath. That's how awesome and horrible was his death. That's what it means that he, he, God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. He died so we can be forgiven. To be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Why did he do all this glory of the gospel stuff? Because he is going to be shown as righteous. Because in his divine forbearance, in his uh, patience, he was passed over former sins just like he did with the Canaanites for 600 years. It was to show his righteousness that that at the present time, so that he might be the just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. 
God is just. He will not let His holiness and His glory be tarnished. He, will, he has to deal with sin. So God provided a way for deal with sin through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But He is also, here's the irony, here's the glory of the cross. He is also the justifier. He's the judge, but He's also the one who paid the penalty. He paid the penalty so that we can be both. The awesomeness, it all resists, all resides at God's lap. Not us, not our doness. There is no distinction. We all deserve the same thing, and we all get the same thing in Jesus Christ. That's forgiveness. And, and Paul in Romans 6 said, The wages of sin is death. What we earn, what we deserve is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. When we take communion today, I want to remind you that. I put a verse up here of Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is... The, but the, Actually, Paul is redundant. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I'd like you to come up to the communion table... And when you take communion, think about that just for a minute. The wages I have earned before God is death. But what he has given me instead is eternal life in Christ Jesus. That is awesome. One, one last thing before we, I, I close up. We as Christians, especially in a church like Red Sea, who want to emphasize God's grace and mercy, and we do want to emphasize God's grace and mercy. We try to talk about it a lot. The danger is sometimes we can create an environment where we th- people think that they deserve God's grace and mercy. Nobody deserves God's grace and mercy. Otherwise, it wouldn't be grace or mercy. And we have to be very careful as Christians. Of course God is going to forgive us. Of course He's going to give us us. He has to do that. No, he doesn't have to. He chooses to through Christ, but he doesn't have to. And that's what, gra- and that's what mercy is. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve, the wrath, the punishment, hell. We don't get that. That's what mercy is, even though we deserve it. But that's what grace is also. Grace is getting what we don't deserve, forgiveness, eternal life, and, God- and righteousness in Christ. That is the gospel. In that Thessalonian passage where Paul describes hell, you will notice that he, at the end of that, says, when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled among all who believed. For eternity, we will be looking at, in the context of all that God's done, he says that, very simply, we will be glorifying him, saying, God, you are awesome. You are so great for what you did for us. And we will marvel. We will just marvel and wonder at our, we, we will have trouble wrapping our minds for eternity, wrapping our minds around all the nuances of the grace and mercy of God that we didn't deserve, but he gave to us anyways. That God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Sometimes in our culture, even in churches, we don't like talking about sin. And, and we it, don't talk about sin. It's, it's negative. It makes us feel bad. So if we don't talk about it, it'll make it okay. I know of a church that changed, because of this idea, we don't talk about sin because it makes people feel bad, they changed the lyrics of the song, Amazing Grace. You know know the song, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Well, they changed it, because that's too negative. People would feel bad. So they changed the lyrics to Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound 
sound that saved a soul like mine. It's not amazing that God saved our souls. That castrates the amazement of the gospel. What's amazing is that he saved a wretch like me. That is amazing grace. That's don't be afraid to talk about sin because in it we get the glory of God expressed in the gospel. In closing, there's the lyrics of a song that kept running through my head this week. I think it's from Rich Mullins. He's the one who, at least I remember singing it, our God is an awesome God. Is that a Rich Mullins thing? Okay. I'm not going to, I'm going to read part of a song. I'm, I'm going to try not to sing it to you. I'm now, Monica's now having flashes of one of her biggest fears of her life, that I would sing a solo in front of everybody, okay? Even if it's Rich Mullins, okay? Our God is an awesome God. When he rolls up his sleeves, he ain't putting on, he, he ain't just putting on the Ritz. Our God is an awesome God. There's thunder in his footsteps and there's lightning in his fists. Our God is an awesome God. And the Lord wasn't joking when he kicked him out of Eden. And it wasn't for no reason that he shed his blood. His return is very close, and so you better be believing that our God is an awesome God. And then the chorus, which is a couple times throughout this, Our God is an awesome God. He reigns from heaven above. With wisdom, power, and love, our God is an awesome God. And this is the verse that kept running through my head. Judgment and wrath he poured out on Sodom, and we can add Jericho. Mercy and grace he gave us at the cross. I hope that we have not too quickly forgotten that our God is an awesome God. I hope that we have not too quickly forgotten that our God is an awesome God. Let's pray. God, I pray that we would not be a people who quickly forget that our God is an awesome God. That, Lord, you, aware of the depth and breadth of our sin, as a people, not just humanity, but also as individuals, as families, knowing that demonstrated your love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We thank you for the generosity of your grace. We thank you for your forbearance and your patience with us. And we thank you, Lord, that you are continually working in us to give us understanding of the amazement of the gospel in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for anyone here who has not responded to the gospel in repentance and faith, that you would draw them to yourself. Lord, that you would work a mighty work of recreation of their hearts and draw them. I pray that they would not be embarrassed or hesitant to respond and talk, but would be open to that. And may the rest of us rejoice in your generosity. We thank you in your precious and glorious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Red Sea Church. If you would like more information about Red Sea, including more audio messages, please go to our website at www.redseachurch.org. If you would like to contact Red Sea, you can email us at info at